0: Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando, and today we're taking a field trip to visit psychoanalyst Chris Powell. Can
1: I close this again? Yeah.
0: So why don't you kind of, uh, tell me what this is here.
1: So this is a a sand play therapy tray, and it's designed to specific dimensions so that you can, it's the size of your visual field. You can look at the whole thing at once. And we have, the inside of the box is painted aquamarine, like the ocean. And this is nice, soft, clean play sand. And the story I heard in the very beginning was that Carl Jung discovered this was a way that he could heal himself by playing in sand at the, at the beach. So I think that's where maybe it got all, all got started. And all of these shelves are filled with miniatures and nature objects, dolls and symbols, biker fairies and such. <laughs> What I ask children or even adults to do is just go around the room and take their time and look at all of the different objects and what typically will happen is certain objects will sort of call out to you and it's usually surprising which ones do and just it's a very intuitive process. Dora Kolf who wrote some of the early works on Sand Tray uh, said Basically, the instructions for doing sand play therapy are follow your heart. (laughs) And so that's about it. So I try to create a a peaceful, safe, and protected play space. And sometimes I put on my uh, ocean cassette that has the sounds of the ocean, the the tide and seagulls and stuff like that (laughs) for ambiance or not, depending on who it is. And then you just see what happens, and you never know what's going to come out in that tray. Sometimes, sometimes something really complex and busy, sometimes something very simple, but it always has something to say. Art always talks back to us.
0: Howell's office has low lighting, a soothing waterfall sculpture, and shells filled to the brim with objects that I can scan through to fill my bowl for my sand play. Okay, and I see you brought out a flashlight, too, to highlight the different sections. Okay, I definitely don't want to pick the clown. <laughs> <laughs> Powell writes under the pen name of Kate Shepard and will soon have a new young adult book out called Dragon Camp that teaches many of the same concepts that were woven into her earlier book, Emotional Orphans. Dragon Camp is a place where highly sensitive, high intensity, and misunderstood young dragons go to get support to learn how to manage their fire-breathing tendencies and actualize their awesome dragon potential. All this made Powell seem to be the perfect person to discuss the 2014 horror film The Babadook, which is about a young boy. Spoiler alert, though. We're going to discuss the film in detail, so you can see how this boogeyman tale is actually a cleverly crafted exploration of grief and loss, as well as a look at a dysfunctional mother and child relationship. The trailer for the film plays up the boogeyman aspect of the story. Where would you get this?
2: On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look... You can't get rid of the Baba Duck. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. Baba Duk, Duck, Duk. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Nothing bad's gonna happen, Sam. Did he think that about my dad before he died? He sees things as they are, that one. I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. Oh my god. Did he hurt anyone? The boy has significant behavioural problems. This monster thing has got to stop, alright? It's just a book. It can't hurt you. You can't get rid of the dog. You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy.
0: The Babadook creature is the MacGuffin of the story. It's what the film seems to be about but isn't. So let's talk with Powell for some psychological insights into Jennifer Kent's brilliant and rich horror film. I'm here with Chris Powell in her office. She is a psychoanalyst and I thought it would be great to talk to her about horror and psychology, in particular about one film, The Babadook. But before we start talking about that. Chris I just want you to talk a little bit about what you do in your work what your specialty is and and kind of the approach you've taken
1: well I'm a social worker and a psychoanalyst and I started out many many years ago working in residential treatment group homes with severely emotionally disturbed children and adolescents and families and so they taught me a lot about how especially young children how they sort of have this incredible organic ability to heal themselves given a safe environment and emotional responsiveness that makes them feel understood and validated. Children will come in, sometimes children as young as four or five years of age, will come into my office and some of them have been through you know, terrible losses and traumas, very disruptive to their behavior and too much for them to process. But they'll grab these toys from the shelves and they'll start making a play. And it's often a monster play. Often they'll do the same play, puppet play, or play with the toys over and over week after week. And then gradually the play morphs and you can see how they're working it through. Similar to how adults will work it through in talk therapy, telling the story. You know, we tell our story once a week or however many times a week we tell it and keep telling it until we feel done telling it. So I did that work for a long time, and then uh, nowadays I work a lot with adults who have who come in uh, with traumas left over from childhood or losses and process them more verbally, but still sometimes using art or writing. And when I saw this film, I was really struck by how It's a really powerful metaphor for what I see as sort of a universal pattern of an unresolved traumatic loss and overwhelming trauma, how it can affect the nervous system, and especially how little children will be so intent upon expressing it and getting someone to listen to them and trying to to work it out, trying to process it.
0: So for you, you are dealing with a lot of what I would call real-world horror, people who've lived through uh, real-world experiences that can be terrifying.
1: Absolutely, which is (laughs) one of the reasons I don't really seek out horror films that often is because I feel like I do get a fair amount of it in real life. And one of the things that people who've been through horrifying, overwhelming experiences need is that validation of seeing something or talking to someone or feeling something that helps them feel like they're not alone in it. And I think that horror films and novels and certain types of music and other experiences can provide that, can be an important part of a creative healing process.
0: One of the things you talk about using here is a
1: sandbox. So what role does that play in working with children? Sand tray therapy is a special type of art therapy some call it sand play some sand tray people have a lot of different ways of doing it but how I was trained is that the the sandbox is designed to be a representation of a child's or an adult's internal world so in this wooden box with the blue lining and play sand a person can take nature objects, miniatures, toys, dolls, whatever they can find and create a world. And sometimes it's very surprising what comes out. It's been referred to by some people as wakeful dreaming because sometimes what comes out in your sand tray is sort of like a dream. You look at it and go, wow, yeah, that's what's going on. I didn't realize. The unconscious seems to know more about what's happening in my soul than my conscious mind does sometimes.
0: The film, The Duke, on the surface, it's promoted as being kind of a boogeyman film. It's this story where there's a mother and her young son, they read this creepy book, and it seems like reading the book summons forth this creature called the Baba Duke. This is, you know, the kind of thing that we see in a lot of horror movies. It's kind of a trope that you watch a videotape and you unleash some ghost or you read a story. But the interesting thing about this film is that. That first glance, you see the Boogeyman story, but each time I've watched it, I've seen more and more elements that reveal that this is a really carefully constructed and amazing psychological
1: study about loss and grief. When you first saw it, what were you struck by at first? My first thought was, oh my God, this is the perfect genre to capture the subjective experience of overwhelming loss and trauma especially for young children. And that sometimes it's a stretch, I think, for adults who haven't experienced something so overwhelming to really get on a deep level what this means to a child, to have, for example in this film, the sudden violent loss of a father at age six, how that shatters a child's world and there's no sense of safety. And then it calls into question everything else. Well, if this could happen, then anything else could happen.
0: Let's start by listening to a scene from the film. This is a key moment that has to do with the reading of a child's book, a child's story. And it introduces the idea of the Babadook.
2: You can choose one tonight. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look you can't get rid of the Babadook. If you're a really clever one and you know what it is to see then you can make friends with a special one a friend of you and me. His name is Mr Babadook and this is his book. A rumbling sound then Three sharp knocks. Ba-ba-ba-duk-duk-duk. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Ba-ba-ba-duk-duk-duk. We might read another one tonight, eh? But you said I could choose. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. <gasps> Mom, does it hurt the boy? Mom? Does it live under the bed?
0: So reading stories is important to Sam. Uh, He also refers to the Big Bad Wolf story that he asked his mom to read. So what does this reading of stories and kind of the somewhat scary stories, what does that do for children and what kind of a release does that offer them?
1: This reminded me very much of, it actually reminded me of a specific child that I worked with about 20 years ago who did a puppet play of A Big Bad Wolf and a little girl over and over and over and you know he comes in sam comes in he's read me the big bad wolf story and then read it again with this urgency and it feels like he's he's looking for validation he's saying this story captures my emotional experience and i need the world to understand this is what i'm going through and be with me in it
0: and this sense of a monster, this ill-defined monster that waits in the shadows and has no real form and seems to be summoned up in the film, what do you see the Baba Duke as representing? Is it something in the child or is it something in the mother? What
1: does it seem to be representing? I think, in a sense, the Baba Duke is sort of a mass of all of the horror and pain that both of them are either trying to process or trying to avoid, with the mom trying desperately to deny it, with the little boy frantically trying to metabolize it and get some support for it.
0: In this context, it seems like the boy is willing to confront some of this, but the mother is keeping it kind of as that boogeyman at the door. So how does that dynamic start to play out in the story?
1: Throughout the film, you see this escalation, where the little boy sends out louder and louder distress signals.
2: My dad's in the cemetery. Oh, that's he got killed driving mum to the hospital to have me. Samuel, I'm sorry, no, that's all right. I shouldn't have. Well, your mum's
0: very lucky to have you, then, isn't she?
1: you know he starts revealing this in in the grocery store telling people terrorizing, terrorizing other children just anything he can think of to try to express how he feels and get a response and the more he does this the more the mother is saying you know stop i can't hear it it's too much don't talk about it she can't bear to hear anyone talk about it has to keep the pain completely at bay And so they're working at odds, and it escalates to the point where both of them get to a point of life and death desperation, his desperation to talk about it and process it and move on with life, and her desperation to not feel it and not look at it and do anything to avoid it because it's just too much for her.
0: One of the interesting things I thought about the film is that it does try to distract you from what it seems to really be about which is this psychological trauma and part of the way it does that is the young boy as he's you talk about this escalation he comes across as this character that us in the audience feel like oh please just like be quiet you're you're (laughs) screaming you're so loud Uh, let me play one scene of him in the car with his mom where he's just throwing a a huge tantrum. captures on one level this very realistic sort of sense of what a kid can be like when they're annoying their parents. And so on one level you're looking at the film and it's just like, oh, he's this kid that's driving his mom crazy. But you're talking about his escalation as being his
1: cry for help. Absolutely. It's interesting to me because um, I've often used a metaphor with my adult patients who don't want to look at a particular feeling or experience. You know, feelings emotional memories can can sometimes feel like a child tugging at your shirt tail and they want attention they need your attention they want to come up they want to be released and if you don't give them attention uh, as some some smart person once said they go down into the basement and lift weights And so that really resonated with me when I saw him. And, you know, he gets louder, he gets more demanding, he starts to look a little crazy. His behavior gets more and more disorganized, but it's all about trying to be heard, you know, sending up bigger and bigger flares, trying to get his needs met. He's a survivor.
0: These signs that he's sending out, though, his mom's ignoring them, but other adults in the film also are not really paying heed to what he's saying and looking at him more as, oh, this must be a kid with... Attention
1: deficit disorder or some other problem. That part was heartbreaking to see. <laughs> no one was picking up his cues, except for Mrs. Roach, the kindly neighbor next door who seemed to really get it. But yes, he his behavior became more and more disorganized and disruptive, and the context that he was living in couldn't tolerate that. And so so rather than saying, you know, this child is obviously in a lot of pain, what can we do to help him? He's punished, he's expelled from school, he's, um, what was the, he's so disobedient, was the thing they kept saying, he's so disobedient. That really wasn't it. Everything that he did and said was his way of saying hello, hello. One thing that
0: seems to be key in horror films is, and i just saw this film called goodnight mommy which is about two young boys who have come home with their mom who's just had it seems that she's uh, been recuperating from an accident and she's had surgery uh, her face is all bandaged up but what that film plays off of and this one does a little bit is this notion of what if you're with someone you love who doesn't seem to be themselves anymore and Every time you go to the authorities or you go to someone in power and try to make them realize, like, there's this scary thing going on. My mom isn't my mom. And it seems like that's a, a horror trope that's often used, that, you know, you're invaders from Mars, where the little kid says that, you know, Martians have taken over his parents, or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where these pod people take over humans. But um, it seems like that's a very real fear of being with someone who no longer seems to be the
1: person you knew? Especially for a young child, it's sort of the ultimate horror that the person upon whom I depend for my very life flips and becomes a monster. For for infants and young children, that's a death threat. And, and they become completely overwhelmed and frantic to do something about it because mom is the lifeline. And so you you see Sam, in this movie, doing everything he can to fix mom. It reminded me of uh, something that Shondor Ferenczi wrote once, one of my favorite, one of the granddaddies of psychoanalysis. He said um, something like, children will take onto their tender shoulders the burdens of all others in the family, not really out of self-sacrifice, but as a way to try to restore the lost innocence and tenderness of childhood. They're trying to restore a universe in which they can feel safe and secure again. And if they have to become a little miniature adult and parent the parents and be the grown-up and, and and devote their little lives to fixing everything, that's what they'll do so they can survive.
0: Well, you're not sure exactly how much Sam is consciously aware of what's going on, but one of the things that he repeatedly seems to talk about is like, I'm going to kill the monster
2: I don't want anything bad to happen to you, Mom. Nothing bad's gonna happen, Sam. I'm gonna
0: protect you. So whether he's completely conscious of what's going on or not, he seems to be aware to the point that there's something bothering his mother that needs to be
1: addressed and gotten rid of he's a smart kid (laughs) I get the sense that intuitively he knows because he keeps insisting you know I need to talk about this you need to talk about this I'm going to tell everybody about it and then by the time we get to the end of the film he's restraining her he's literally tying her up and exercising the demon he's saying I'm going to save you from it literally
2: I know you don't love me The bubba duck won't let you, but I love you, Mom. And I always will. (laughs) You let it in! You have to get it out!
0: (laughs) And she spits it out. (laughs) Well, again, looking at the film where, on a superficial level, it strikes you as this monster movie, and he's talking about he arms himself with all sorts of weapons that he creates out of toys in the house and he's like arming himself to kill the monster and that seems like you talk about using play to help convey what's going on and it seems like that's a very focused thing that he has about this notion of I'm gonna kill the monster.
1: I think he's trying to master it so he was six years old, and all of a sudden his world is completely blown apart. And he essentially lost both of his parents, because his, his mother has sunk into this really dark place with unresolved grief, and to the point where she gets a little psychotic later on in the film. And he he says, you're not my mommy. You know, these the the monster won't let you love me. The monster won't let you be my mom anymore. And, I you know, that struck me as being pretty close to how kids actually feel. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'm glad that um, I've had mentors uh, over the years who've talked about trauma in terms of things like, or PTSD especially, terms like ghosts and darkness, battling ghosts and darkness. And I think that's often how it feels. And it makes a lot of sense that a child would concretize that in. It also reminds me of um, the Fisher King the uh, Robin Williams film, where this gigantic... The Red Knight, yeah. it's symbolic of this, this horrible, violent way that his beautiful young wife died. But in his mind, that's what was happening. His his struggle to try to come back from that shattering trauma was his his holy war against the Red Knight.
0: And you talked about your the kids that you've worked with using toys to play things out. There's a scene in the film where he does a little show with his stuffed animals. So let's hear a little bit from that scene.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, mom and dad, life is not always as it seems. It can be a wondrous thing, but it can also be very treacherous.
0: So again, is this Sam showing us how smart he is, even though it may not overtly seem that way?
1: To me, this was poignant to me. I see a few things are happening here. One is he's kind of parenting his animals, you know? He's kind of being the good mommy to his little animals, and he's explaining to them what's happened in the way that he wishes someone would explain to him. The other thing that struck me about this, it reminds me a lot of uh, Castaway, where Tom Hanks is, you know, isolated for so long that he starts to lose his mind. Which, you know, is really Sam's problem. He's being so isolated by what's happening in his family system. And so Sam, he can't get his mom to respond and his mother doesn't want him to talk to anyone else. And so Sam starts talking to the stuffed animals. Sam takes some of his dad's clothing and hangs them up or, you know, ranges them in a way. And then he relates to this clothing, like he's relating to his dad. Uh, similar to what uh, Tom Hanks' character did by putting that soccer ball on the stick and creating a dialogue with Wilson.
0: Some of the the imagery in the film seems to be very clear-cut in terms of how it plays out in defining the kind of dysfunction between the mother and the son. But then there are some scenes that seem less clear. There's an incident where there's glass in the cereal bowl, and you found this kind of interesting because it's... (gasps) not clearly defined how that might be playing out in terms of their relationship.
2: Don't eat it.
1: Yeah, that was fascinating and of course disturbing. And I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. I mean, you know, it could have been either one of them. (laughs) And he's a good little actor, so when he plays innocent, you know, we're not sure if he's really innocent or not. But my guess is that it was a, a way to try to wake up mom to you know he was he's trying to she's kind of almost catatonic at this point and and the glass and the cereal is kind of hard to ignore it's so shocking and it really gets her attention so for sam and his mom the world gets kind of smaller
0: and smaller as they hole up inside the house but there are other people who try to make them confront it there's the sister it'll be seven years isn't it time you moved on i have moved on i don't mention him i
2: don't talk about him what strain is that on you, Claire? You're not even good enough to have a dad. Everyone else has one and you don't. I do have a dad. I listen to your life day in, day out, and you never stop to ask me anything about mine. I do. I want to know how you are. You don't come around to our house anymore. Because I can't stand being around your son. I can't believe you just said that
0: you can't stand being around him yourself how would you kind of analyze the mother in terms of what are the things that she's dealing with that really need to be confronted
1: I don't know about confronting <laughs> I mean, I think what the mother's really dealing with is her own human capacity she she cannot process this it's it is completely overwhelming and she can't look at it, she can't hear about it, she can't even tolerate reminders of the trauma and the loss. And e- even, you know, Mrs. Roach, the kindly neighbor, even her empathy is too much of a trigger.
2: He sees things as they are, that one. Oscar was the same. He always spoke his mind. Do you have to keep on bringing him up?
1: Even her saying, I love you guys, and I'm concerned about you, triggers the loss and and causes the mom to isolate even more.
0: So we're given a sense of the trauma that sets this off. There was apparently an accident in which the husband and father is killed, the boy lives, the mother lives. So how would you define kind of... it seems she can't face the grief she has over having lost her husband, but the other problem is that kind of deeply hidden inside her is this resentment towards her son that he lived.
2: You don't know how many times I wished it was you, not him, that died. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Sometimes... I just wanna smash your head against a brick wall until your fucking brains pop out. You're
1: not my mother. I mean near the end she says that. Um, she sort of blurts out, you know, wish it was you instead. But, you know, I don't think she means that. I think that was just sort of she was having a maybe a mini break or maybe a major breakdown in that moment. <laughs> think she loves her son but she has just been completely blown apart by this overwhelming loss and you know she probably needs tons of support and a lot of time and patience to get her strength back so that she can start to metabolize it little bits at a time and and she should not be left alone to care for a vulnerable six-year-old while that happens
0: in the context of a horror film the baba duke builds a lot of tension and suspense because we don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know if this baba duke is a creature, is a manifestation of their mind, is something real. But if somebody's going through what the mother's going through in terms of grief and loss, that is something that's genuinely in the real world, something very horrifying and terrifying.
1: Absolutely. I think this film captures that very closely.
0: So do you think that people suffering from these kind of sense of loss or sense of grief or an inability to cope with something that's a, a psychological trauma, do you think that horror provides an interesting and possibly
1: therapeutic way to deal with some of that? I think that horror and violence and intense forms of expressive art can be immensely cathartic and validating for people who are experiencing extreme emotional states, for sure, creating their own art or experiencing someone else's art. And I've known kids and adults who will watch the same film uh, sometimes a, an extremely violent or horrifying film over and over and over and over and it resonates and it resonates and it's like yeah that's how I feel that's how I feel nothing else in the world realizes how I feel.
0: And do you think horror films serve different kinds of purposes? Um, you talk about some people watching something like a horror film or something violent because they've suffered some sort of trauma but for some people is it cathartic for some people is it like reassuring because they're not the only one. What are kind of the different ways that horror can kind of be used by people, whether intentionally or
1: kind of subconsciously? I'm sure there are countless different uses of it. And I know a lot of folks who just love to be scared and enjoy the thrill and it's fun.
0: Yeah. Earlier in the month, I ran a archive interview I had done with Clive Barker. And one of the things he mentioned that he thought was interesting was that a lot of soldiers love to read his books. So is there a sense that if you're experiencing kind of real world horrors, is it do you want to avoid that stuff in movies, or do some people want to actually confront it even further in movies? because it somehow, I mean, it seems like it seems like it could be you could take two different approaches that if you have, a life where you experience real-life horrors like some of the things you deal with with patients you might want to avoid films that kind of remind you of that but the soldiers seemed like they wanted to see these films that had a kind of horror that was very different from the real-world horror experiencing experiences that they were having
1: I think a lot of different kinds of people feel accompanied by it that this is I don't feel alone in it any longer because this art form or this experience is resonating with my internal experience, my internal emotional experience. I loved what Clive Barker said in that interview. He said, horror provides a vessel, a place for the fear to go. We can safely put it all in one place. And it's sort of like kids do with the sand tray. It's a container where you can process it and master it something that a soldier could never do on the battlefield.
0: In the Babadook, the creature, the Babadook itself, which, as I said, you can take it either as a a boogeyman figure or as this manifestation of their trauma, but in the film, the way the filmmaker chooses to deal with it is it never goes away. So is that an accurate representation of what might be going on kind of in this dysfunctional relationship between the mom and her son?
1: My read on that was that that's sort of the nature of overwhelming losses and traumas in our nervous system. It doesn't go away. And, you know, people have a lot of different ways of trying to anesthetize the pain or to compartmentalize, postpone, delay, deny, minimize, dissociate. You know, we have a zillion different ways to deal with these things, but it doesn't really go anywhere she tried bless her heart i mean she ripped up the book she burned the book (laughs) she you know they were both doing their best to try to do this monster in and you know she burns the book and the monster calls her on the phone (laughs) it's not going anywhere claire hello reminds me of the old saying you know the only way out of this is through it you know I think sometimes that can be really true of grief especially of overwhelming losses and traumas that the more we try to resist it sometimes th- there's actually a line in there that doesn't the Baba Duke say yeah the more you deny the stronger I get let me in
0: <laughs> yeah I think there's some truth to that here's a spoiler as I've mentioned before, if you haven't seen the film, you probably shouldn't be listening to this right now. You should see the movie first and then take a listen so that you can kind of rewatch the film with a little enlightenment. But it ends where the Duke is kind of contained in the basement, and she goes and feeds it. So how does that imagery play out for you?
1: I love this scene where she, you know, there's there's this dramatic change from all the darkness and horror, uh, and then suddenly everything is sweet, and she's wearing her white stocking and stockings and pink dress and everything. You know, he's having his birthday party. Um, and then she goes to the basement, and she actually comforts this raging monster. It's like she's finally giving him the attention that he needs. And, I mean, he's still there. He's still there in the basement. He always will be. You're not going to forget him.
2: Am I ever going to see it? One day, when you're bigger. Mm -hmm. You go outside and you don't come in until I tell you.
1: But she has figured out a way that she can give him the attention he needs and she can also give her son the attention he needs and go on with her life. There's kind of an integration, an integration of the monster into the family.
0: Had mentioned to me something called the gifted child. And it seems that while the mother is struggling and floundering, the little boy is still desperately kind of recognizing that there's a problem saying like, I don't want you to go away, mom, I don't want you to die. So how does he fit into this notion of the gifted child?
1: Sam is destined to grow up and become a psychoanalyst. <laughs> the gifted child is a reference to Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child and Alice Miller is was a genius who wrote many books uh, about children who had grown up with abuse or with narcissistic parents and other things and she talked about how vulnerable children who do not get the care and responsiveness that they need from their parents will develop this giftedness this intuition and sensitivity where they can take care of the parents and they can find a way to maintain a tie with the parent, a survival tie. And they sacrifice a lot of their own emotional needs and developmental needs to do that. And, and they do, a lot of them do grow up to be therapists. I mean, they develop a lot of talent and an extraordinary precocious ability to emotionally caretake others.
0: Well, and Sam also seems smart in the sense that he keeps adapting. So his initial response is, to try to get attention, try to make her aware of what's going on, try to talk to other people. He tries to protect her. But kind of the final state seems to be the last desperation is a real defiance and a a sense of he really has to do something himself. He can't just be asking for help or trying to make her aware of it.
1: Yeah, he doesn't shoot her until he has to. (laughs) I like him for that so for me Sam seems like an incredibly bright resilient little survivor and he is trying everything to get his needs met to be heard to fix his mom to get through to his mom you know um, but then when he has to he finally does he doesn't really shoot her he just disables her he re- restrains her so that he can, essentially when she tries to kill him, he, said, he draws the line there. He's like, okay, mom, I'm, I know you're having a hard time, but I'm not going to let you kill me. So let's tie you up and put you in the basement until you can spit the monster out.
0: <laughs> Some of the film is about getting into her subjective point of view, where she can't quite tell what's real and what's going on. So what is that like for someone? Is that kind of a kind of horror when you get to this point where maybe you, you're lying between reality and fantasy or hallucination is so ill-defined that you really can't tell anymore. That, to me, seems like something that's truly
1: terrifying. Oh, it must be. I can only imagine. Did you see The Black Swan? Mm-hmm. I loved how it was handled in that film. I That gave me an experience of what I imagine it must be like to be tormented by delusions and visual hallucinations and to, to really to not be able to find the boundary between your your former known reality and whatever it is that's happening to you now. It's like being it's it's like being terrorized from within.
0: Well, I've always found that horror is an interesting place to deal with certain kinds of fears that are in the real world that you don't necessarily want to confront. And for me, as a fan of zombies, I feel that zombies kind of encapsulate a certain fear of losing your sense of identity but still somehow being human so to me it would be like fear of alzheimer's or fear of dementia where i'm
1: still kind of myself this is this feels like really familiar territory to me not the literal zombies but i meet a lot of people who come in a lot of times in midlife and have some kind of a realization that I'm becoming a zombie or I'm terrified that I am I'm going to become a zombie and I want to get my life back I'm living someone else's life or I'm not fully living and it's this sense of being in a coffin and and the lid is creaking closed and I want to live again
0: so it seems like
1: a lot of people
0: who may create horror whether consciously or unconsciously, seem to be drawing on a lot of kind of real-world things going on in people's psychology. It feels
1: universal to me. I think that fear's a tough one. Uh, We all struggle with our own unique fears, and it's tremendously helpful to be able to externalize some of those, especially the really big ones. And this movie really is about big feelings, (laughs) if nothing else. (laughs) You know, we can put the monster outside and battle it there, I think that feels a lot more creative and workable than being alone with the ghosts and the monsters and the darkness inside your mind. Well
0: in this film it resolves itself with kind of, I guess you could call it almost an exorcism of sorts, because Sam kind of restrains her and tries to get her, she coughs up some black goo that seems to be the creature, but this seems to work whatever happens whether what we're seeing is what's really happening or whether this is kind of what the the imagined thing that's going on but it seems like once she gets this demon out of her she's finally able to kind of take on some motherly qualities.
1: She can be herself again. It it reminds me of some young people that I've worked with especially in inpatient settings who have been horribly traumatized by abandonment, abuse, various things. And a lot of times in that kind of work, the first year or more is trying to forge a relationship with a child who is sometimes fighting you off ferociously, sometimes violently, sometimes punching and kicking and wiping boogers on you and all kinds of different things. But there are those moments, thankfully, where finally there's some type of a breakthrough and the child who has been, you know, swearing at me and pushing me away every way under the sun for the last year will come into my office and will start sobbing and and then say, you know, I never told anybody this before, but you know, someone beat me or someone molested me or whatever it is that's been tormenting them. And then you see a lot of times this transformation where all of the armor you know, the porcupine quills and the skunk tail and all of these survival mechanisms that they've accumulated over the years, they start to kind of dissipate. And then you can, you can see, you know, the real child that's been in there. When they, when they start to feel safe enough, they start to uh, live again and feel safe to be their true selves or develop their true selves.
0: Do you see that this film could be a tool in any way for you to work with someone who might be going through some sort of trauma?
1: I am sure that I'm going to be referring to this film. <laughs> I find myself even just talking with you for a few minutes here. I've made what three or four film references. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really powerful metaphor and could be useful for a lot to capture a lot of different experiences that people have, and and some people can feel bits of this horror from from other experiences too. Um, You know, there are a lot of highly sensitive people who can feel very horrified by something that we might not think is such a big deal. And it can be useful for them too. And do you think by
0: being a film and being a horror film that it removes it enough from what somebody might be experiencing in the real world that it doesn't feel kind of as challenging to them you know as confronting them about the issue as directly as it might be if you were to say to them oh you're dealing with this but you
1: know if you can say like oh watch this and tell me what you think. That's the beauty sometimes of art therapy and play therapy and symbols is that you know not only can you sort of bypass some of the defense mechanisms and intellectualization and the wall of words that you know especially with intelligent you know insightful people it's a blessing and not, sometimes not a blessing when you're trying to get past it to help them heal but art and music and film and all of these things can have a way sometimes of going straight to the heart sometimes bypassing some of the defenses um, some of the stories some static or interference of different kinds and getting right to the heart of the matter and it doesn't always have to be words. I mean, some people will talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and heal themselves that way. Uh, others heal themselves through painting. Others, I have one little girl who heals herself through making videos. You know, we each of us have our, our languages and our way of um, expressing the emotion, making ourselves understood, mastering it, trying to transmute something that feels toxic into something that feels more creative and forward-moving.
0: So in conclusion, would you recommend The Babadook to people to go see, both for just entertainment and for possible enlightenment?
1: I think I would recommend it selectively (laughs) to, to people of some ages, I mean, you know, for for sturdy grown-ups yeah definitely see it and tell me what you think it could be a little overwhelming i think especially for some kids so i would recommend it with certain disclaimers to certain populations because <laughs> it is scary in fact some of my there's my therapist friends are afraid to see it because they think it's too scary <laughs> wow well, and it also, because
0: it, the character, the Babadook, comes from a children's book inside the film. So this is where he springs forward from. But children's stories, I mean, if you go back and read the um, old
1: the fairy, tale. fairy tales, they're His terrifying. Yes. <laughs> I've never seen so much mutilation in my life as in those old fairy tales. Yeah. <laughs> but again, there are these they're universal themes. They're so archetypal. The first time we meet the narcissistic mother is in the, the fairy tales. You know, there she is. She's fattening up the child so she can eat it or whatever. <laughs> Children's stories and fairy tales
0: seem to be deeply connected to horror in some way. I think so.
1: They sure have been watered down over the years, though.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I, I want to thank you very much for spending some time with me and talking about horror and the Baba Duke.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Check back every week for new episodes featuring film reviews, interviews, and discussions. Every Friday in October, the topic will be horror. Next week, I'll take you behind the scenes of Reanimator the musical. You can also catch up with my podcast about Clive Barker and Surgeon's Hall Museum, a macabre and fascinating surgical museum. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.